Let us pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we come before you now to consider these words that we've heard out of your word. I pray that you will take my very meager words and make them yours. Speak to our hearts, open our hearts by your spirit to hear and to receive what you have for us. Build within us the faith that we see on display here. And Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned right at the beginning, my name is Father Tim Howe. I work in your building. I'm on the bishop's staff, so I'm upstairs several times a week. And I want to let you know that every time I come, one of the things I do is I pray for this church. And I pray for you. That you truly will be a people who know the overflowing love of God and his amazing healing power. It's on your sign up front. And I pray that that will be your reality. Not just for you, but for people like Jairus and people like this woman who are desperate that they can find Jesus. So, Let's talk about these two people for a few minutes. Our passage, you might want to have the bulletin insert with you open if you got one, if you didn't get one. Okay. I'm sorry, only the front party gets them. So front party, you may want to have it open. Here we are at the second half of Mark chapter 5. And... Jesus has just come back from a trip across the Sea of Galilee. If you've ever taken one of the Holy Land tours, of course they show you the Sea of Galilee. I got to do that a couple of years ago. It was quite an amazing experience. And you realize when you're there that the Sea of Galilee just isn't that big. But back then, it would take a while to get across. They didn't have outboard motors like we have today. They would row or they'd have sails. But he had gone across the sea a couple of days before and had spent some time in a region called the Decapolis, which was a largely Gentile population. And there he had met a man whose sole existence was to live in the cemetery naked and chained up because he was possessed by legions of demons, is what the scriptures tell us. And he was unable to free himself. And all his friends, all his family, all the town knew, didn't know what to do with him. So they tried to chain him up and keep him out of town and away from the kids. Jesus had just healed that man and set him free. And now he's come back. It could be the next day. It might be a couple of days after he has done this. But it's not that long. And he's probably in Capernaum. The scriptures don't tell us exactly where he is, but he's probably in Capernaum. That was his home base. And that's where a lot of his early ministry had occurred. And when he arrives, he gets out of the boat, and he's standing there beside the sea. He's on the beach at the edge of town. 
And verse 21, and this is repeated again a couple verses later, tells us that a great crowd gathered around him. Everybody in town has come out to see Jesus and probably lots of people from the surrounding villages who may be in town for market day or something else. We don't know. We aren't told. But they come to see Jesus as well. And one of the things that we need to realize is that the descriptions given of this crowd are of a tight, packed crowd. These people were not social distancing. The government and the CDC would have a hard time with them, okay? They are jostling each other. They are tight against each other. Have you ever been in a crowd like that? Just not if you have. Most of us have at one point or another, where it's hard to, if you're with someone, people are trying to get in between you. It's hard to get where you want to go. It's hard to stay with the people you want to be with. Everybody's got their elbows out and trying to get to Jesus. And suddenly, while he's there, just got off the boat, someone comes to meet him. It's the synagogue ruler, one of the synagogue rulers. This gentleman, Jairus, would have been part of what we would call a vestry. These were the people who ran the services, had control of the local synagogue building, took care for making sure uh, it was maintained, took care that the services were conducted and all the usual things that a vestry takes care of, the budgets and all that kinds of things. And he's a member of that group. And he comes and he falls in front of Jesus. Now think about this with me for just a minute. What this shows us is that this is a very, very, very desperate man. His daughter is about to die. His beloved daughter. And coming and falling at Jesus' feet is an act of abject dependency. He is saying to Jesus, just through his actions, I have nothing left but you. If you don't help me, there is no help. And he's imploring Jesus, please, please come. This is a desperate man. Now notice something else. Synagogue rulers don't just run up and fall down before anyone at random. Okay? They don't plead to anyone. This man is begging Jesus to help him, and he's doing it from faith. Notice what it says. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. There's no qualifications. There's no ifs. There's no conditions. Jesus, just come and touch her, and she will be made well and live. This is a prayer of faith. I know you can do this, Jesus. And he would know if he's a synagogue ruler in Capernaum. Jesus did many of his early miracles there in Capernaum. We are told that one of the first times he visits, he teaches in their synagogue. And then that evening, everybody who was sick 
or possessed by a demon or oppressed by a demon or whatever comes to where he is, to the house he's staying at. And I often have a picture of him just kind of standing in the doorway there and ministering to everybody and says that everybody that came got healed in Jairus's town. Many of his neighbors, many of his friends, maybe even some of his family members. And now he's coming. He knows that Jesus has the ability to heal. And he says to him, come, lay your hands on my daughter and she will be well. There's no bargaining. There's just out, flat out pleading in faith. Now, he bases his request on what he already knows about Jesus. And I submit to you that this is one of the first keys for us to take away from this. He knows what he's seen and what he's heard. And he bases his request on what he knows Jesus can do. This is a key of faith. Faith isn't just a blind trust. It's a knowledgeable intelligent, understanding, reasonable understanding that I can go to this man, Jesus, and based on what we know about him, I can ask for what I need. This is what Jesus is doing. He knows that Jesus can heal. So he comes in faith, desperate faith, faith. Now, this lays before us a challenge do we still have this kind of faith? I know I speak to a church which has seen the Lord do many great and marvelous things in years gone by, but do we still have this kind of faith? Do we still trust that he will continue to work in us and on us and through us? Do we still have faith that we can still find him and his help even sometimes when we are beset by controversies or turmoil or confusion. And then notice one other thing that Jairus does. He puts out of his mind every other consideration that would distract him from asking for help from Jesus. He doesn't care about his social standing. He doesn't care about his position at the synagogue. He doesn't care about his reputation in the town. He goes to Jesus and begs for what needs to happen. Maybe this is something we need to do sometimes. Take whatever our issue is, take it to Jesus, and Jesus alone for his help. One of the wonderful promises is that the scriptures are bursting with promises that he will help us when we come to him and ask or plead or humble ourselves and acknowledge our need for him and for his help. Let me just share one promise with you. Psalm 50 Verse 15, jot it down, Psalm 50, verse 15. It says, the Lord says, call to me in your day of distress or trouble and I will answer you. No conditions, I will answer you. And then the last phrase is, and you shall glorify me when he answers. Psalm 50, verse 15. He is true to that promise. I have 
tested it myself, and I know for a fact, in the day of trouble, you can call to him, and he will answer. And then we need to respond and glorify him. Psalm 50, verse 15. This is what's going on here. Jairus is in his day of trouble. So, what do we see Jesus do? Does he condemn Jairus? Oh, ye of little faith, does he... Uh, complain that he's a lousy parent, you got let your daughter get sick, you fed her the wrong things, da-da-da-da-da. Nothing, nothing. In fact, the silence of Jesus speaks volumes of the love of God for us. There's no condemnation. There's nothing. What does Jesus do? It says he begins to go with Jairus, and he's going to his house. Nothing but a willingness to help and to bring a blessing of healing. Oh, what love this shows. People, what love this shows. He doesn't condemn when we ask his help. It doesn't matter who you are, what your problem is. He doesn't condemn when we ask for his help. But wait, there's more. They start off for the house. Now, Capernaum isn't that big a town. It's just probably a few blocks walk from the beach to the synagogue ruler's house. But the crowd is absolutely jam-packed. Everyone is still thronging around Jesus. In front, on both sides, in behind. People are jostling. They want to be next to him, making it hard to walk, slowing everybody down. His disciples are there too, getting crushed in the crowd, just like everybody else. And it is at this point we meet a second desperate person. She too has heard about Jesus. It says she had heard the reports about him. People have been talking. The gossip chains have been running wild all through the territory about this Jesus. And she has come just to get close, just to touch his clothes. If I just touch the hem of his garment, that'll be enough. I will be made well. Now, let's talk about her for just a moment. She too is acting on her faith based on what she already knows about Jesus. Like Jairus, She is desperate. Mark describes her condition for us. She's had bleeding for 12 years. She has spent all of her money on doctors and treatments and cures. Every every quack cure that's been promulgated, she has clicked on all the things on the internet of the time and tried them all. Okay? Okay. She has endured numerous and painful treatments under the care of many different doctors. And Mark tells us none of it worked. Nothing helped. And in fact, she was worse off after all of that physically than when she was first diagnosed. Nothing has helped. And now she's broke. She has spent everything. She has no money. She's got nothing. And then there's one other thing to remember. The type of illness that she had under the law marks her as unclean. She is not allowed to walk the streets 
without announcing to anybody who may be walking by her or towards her, I'm unclean, stay away. Anybody that she encounters, by law, she is required to tell them, I'm unclean, stay away from me. Because if an, a clean person just touches an unclean person, the clean person automatically becomes unclean under the law and is then required to undergo an elaborate set of rituals to wash away the uncleanness and be restored to cleanness and thus to society. So the end result of this is she's broke, she's still sick, she's in more pain than when she began, and she is incredibly lonely. Everybody in town knows her condition. Twelve years they've known her condition. And what does she do? She begins to push into the crowd. Now think about that for a moment. What this means is everybody she touches becomes unclean. Everybody she touches becomes unclean. But there's something that happens. She is moving into this crowd in faith, trusting that Jesus can heal her. And what happens if she is healed is that she becomes clean. She's no longer unclean. So she is trusting that all these people that she is touching aren't going to be infected or affected or in any way harmed by her coming to Jesus. Because the power of God can overcome the ceremonial law. She pushes in. And let me tell you, this is faith. She pushes in, she's right behind him, and she succeeds. She just touches him, and that's all it took. Like this, she knows she's been healed. She feels it in her body. The flow stops. And she knows beyond the shadow of a doubt that she has been healed. People, I don't know about you, but every time I read that story, I don't go, hallelujah, praise God. Okay? Her faith is rewarded. But that's not all. Jesus stops and he turns around and he says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, any one of several hundred people touched you. What do you mean who touched you? And he says, power went out from me. He knows what's happened but he wants to do something. He wants to talk to her. And he wants to confirm her in her faith, his newest disciple. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. One tiny little thing. This is just an interesting tidbit that I noticed as I was getting ready for today. The grammatical construction in Greek of that sentence, it's uh, Mark chapter 5, verse 34. The grammatical construction renders Jesus' words to her as an assurance that not only is she now healed, but that she will continue to be well going forward. Her healing is permanent. Okay, That's what he's saying to her. 
you have nothing to worry about anymore. But now there's a different problem. Wait, there's more. Healing her and speaking to her has wasted valuable time. Can you imagine Jairus standing there watching all this? Come on, my daughter's dying. Lady, you've been sick for 12 years. Couldn't you wait a few minutes? And then, while they're still talking, his worst fear is realized. It says messengers came from his house to tell him the little girl was dead. Don't trouble Jesus anymore. It's too late. There's nothing he can do. Now, have you ever been, for instance, in a car accident? I've been in several. We had a, we had a Honda van that people seemed to like to run into. And I still remember one time I was driving. I was actually driving here to church, to this church. And I was stopped at a light and a lady rear-ended me. And I still remember that couple of seconds of shock because I didn't see her coming. That couple of seconds of shock where your mind just kind of goes blank. That's what happens to Jairus right here. His mind just goes blank. What do I do? And he sees the wave of grief about to land on his head. But before it does, something happens. Jesus leans over to him and says to him, do not fear, only believe. Continue to have faith. You ever been in a situation like that? Turmoil, confusion, shock, grief. It can be hard to hear that word. I'm sure Jairus is now not really hearing what Jesus is saying. Only believe. When all our hopes, all our desires are crushed beyond repair, only believe. Our emotional turmoil does not change who and what Jesus is, nor what he can do. Do not fear, only believe. Jairus has prayed for Jesus to come into this situation, and Jesus is there. So, they continue on to the house. There's a whole crowd, obviously. Jairus, known in town, friends, family, gathered to grieve. And Jesus asks them, why are you here? Why are you here? Why are you grieving? Why all this wailing? She's not dead. And they start to laugh at him. She's dead. We know dead when we see dead. She's only asleep. She's not asleep. She's dead. And what happens is none of those people have faith. So he pushes them all out of the house. He says, we don't need you here. Leave. And they leave. And he takes mom, he takes dad, and he takes Peter, James, and John, and they go into the room where the little girl is. Now, here's another thing. If she is truly dead, and she is, her body is now unclean. And anybody that touches her will become unclean and have to go through elaborate rituals and cleansing ceremonies in order to rejoin society. And what does Jesus do? He walks up, he reaches out, and he takes her hand. He reaches across all possible barriers. The barrier of death, 
the barrier of illness, the barrier, the uh, barrier of ritual uncleanness, and he touches her. Think about this for just a moment. Just that action of touch. It is at this point that we see that God loves that little girl. And then he speaks to her. He says two words to her in Aramaic, Talitha Kumi, that's Aramaic. And fortunately, Mark translated it into Greek for us. And then our English Bible translators translated it into English for us. So we know that what he says to her is, little girl, I say to you, get up. Okay? Now, one of the amazing things is that there are three times in the scriptures where Jesus raises someone from the dead. This is one of them. The other two are Lazarus in John chapter 11. And the third one is the son of the widow of a little country town called Nain, N-A-I-N. And that one was almost coincidental. Jesus and his disciples are walking into town. The funeral's coming out of town. And Jesus stops and touches the casket again in action, reaching across the barrier of death and uncleanness and raises the boy from the dead. And that's what happens here. We see the power of God to heal, to raise to life, and to strike away everything that would keep this young girl from fully enjoying her life. He heals her, he raises her, and he restores her. And what is their reaction? They are amazed. You would be too. Now, I submit to you this. Hebrews 13 verse 8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The Jesus we see healing these two people is the same Jesus alive today to do the same. He has not stopped. Both Jairus and the woman used the same key, and that key was the key of faith. They knew enough about Jesus to trust that he could heal them and that he is inclined to do so. People, he is inclined to do so. He still is. And they were both desperate enough in their need that they threw all other considerations out the window in their pursuit of that vital connection to him that would bring a healing. And people, I submit to you that this is what he still does. So, in conclusion, what are the lessons that we can learn from these women and this man? The first is this. Faith is the key. Not just blind trust, but knowledgeable faith. Reading the accounts and understanding that what we see him doing here, he can still do today. That kind of faith. The second is that this knowledge comes by reading the book, by understanding who he is. Like this desperate woman, she has heard the reports. We need to hear the reports and trust that God is still like this. And third, and finally, it takes humility 
It takes humility to make this connection to our Lord. Jairus and the woman were desperate enough that they came in abject humility, acknowledging their absolute powerlessness to deal with their issues. They couldn't fix it. They put aside all other considerations of power or position or pride or social standing or anything in order to get to Jesus. And both of them get what they asked for. Humble faith, knowledgeable faith is the key that unlocks Christ's power. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this story from the life of our Lord. Thank you for the faith of these two desperate people. Thank you for honoring their faith. Oh, Jesus, come and build this kind of faith in us. Help us to reach out in faith to you for the answers we need in whatever our trial or tribulation. Encourage us from these examples to continue to come and trust you. Answer us when we call in our time of need and grant us grace to glorify you when you answer. We thank you for this gift of faith. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.